told you one of the things that I really like about this time we spend together every week. Uh, probably I haven't, but one of the things I really like is the opportunity for us to think out loud together. You probably noticed by now that I don't always have a real carefully scripted, polished presentation that sometimes I go from here to there and the other place. And sometimes I like to, to think along with you or invite you to think along with me, and I hope you do that. But one of the things I really like is just the fact that we can spend this time and we can think out loud about these things. We don't have to be concerned about coming to absolutely correct conclusions about everything. Although we are careful, aren't we, that we don't get in some ditch someplace because we want to we want to concentrate on telling the truth and understanding the truth as God gives it to us. So it's not like we're trying to be goofy or anything. But sometimes when we think out loud together, we process the information in a way that helps it become more a part of us, makes it more, how should I say, part of the fabric of our being, and maybe just maybe helps us come to some conclusions that we might not come to otherwise, because we need to process these things so that they can become a part of what guides our life, what guides our thinking. And so this idea of thinking out loud really helps me. I hope it helps you. And I, I was also thinking about that. Isn't that great that here we can think out loud on America out loud? So I guess there's a lot of room for out loud stuff here. So I invite you to join us again today and let's think out loud about some important things. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. I'm the pastor at Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida. That's on the west coast of Florida. We call it Southwest Florida. If you can't really identify where that is right offhand, just think we're the place Hurricane Ian visited last fall and really wreaked havoc around here. And we're still cleaning up for it, but we're managing and we're fine. We're going to keep going forward. But our church is... Just like many churches, we're not terribly unusual, maybe unusual in the sense that, that we have a, a real strong commitment to what the Bible says and understanding it, telling the truth about things. And, and we tend to agree that the gift that the church, Christians, have for the world around us today is the truth because we live in a world of lies and deception, people always trying to tell us a story about one thing or another, People always trying to get us to believe one thing or another, not necessarily focusing on the truth. But we do that here, and we do that at our church. And I hope that you do that at your church. And if you don't do it at your church, well, if you can get your church back on track, do it. If you can't, and your church does not concentrate on the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, if your church refuses to focus on that which is true and right and holy, then maybe you need to find a church that's closer, closer to the Bible, that actually follows what the Bible teaches, and actually follows the one that the Bible tells us about, the one whose name is Jesus. And here on the program, we've been telling the story of Jesus, particularly since before December, well, before Christmas, I should say, last fall, when we began the season of Advent, we tell the story of Jesus in, in anticipation of his birth and mixed into that in anticipation of his coming again because he did come and he will come. And so we think about both of those things leading up to the celebration of Christmas, the actual birth of Jesus, and then we celebrate that 
because it is a very big deal that Jesus came. That is well illustrated in the story we want to look at today, but let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. So we celebrate the birth of Jesus, and we celebrate the revelation of Jesus to the people around him. And one of the important revelations was the revelation of Jesus to the wise men. And we generally remind ourselves that that is a symbolic event. It was a real event, but it's also a symbolic event that Jesus came for all people. And so when Jesus was revealed to the wise men, he was revealed to the Gentiles. Up to this time, up to the birth of Jesus, God had worked through his people, the Hebrews, the Jewish people. They had been the ones that carried the message of God to the world so people could know the one true God. Now the one true God had come into the world in the person of Jesus, and it was important to make sure that everybody knew that. Everybody understood that his coming, yes, he came in the cradle of his people, the Jewish people. He came in fulfillment of all that God had promised through them and to them, but he also came to the rest of the people too, the people we call Gentiles. So Jesus was revealed to the Gentiles at the arrival of the wise men. Other things take place in the life of Jesus. We most noted his baptism because at his baptism it was revealed that, wow, this was the Son of God and God really was pleased with him. And even more than that, we saw the heavens torn apart. Heaven came down in the form of what looked like a dove, and the Holy Spirit in that form entered into Jesus. And we now know, we now learn that Jesus was and is filled with that Holy Spirit from God. He was tested, tempted in the wilderness. One of the important factors of his life, and we've talked about that. And today, we come to another story that's fairly well known to a lot of us, particularly because of one phrase. And we want to talk about that phrase a little bit and make sure we understand what it means. But we come to the story of a man visiting Jesus under cover of darkness. A man named Nicodemus, a Pharisee. We want to talk about some of the implications of that visit, some of the realities of that conversation. But before we get into all of that, let's read the story so we all remember what was going on here. Now, it took place in John chapter 3. This is where we're looking at the story today. And John chapter 3, I just make sure you pay attention to the end. John chapter 3 is the chapter where we have John 3.16, one of the most well-known verses in all of Christendom. People have heard of John 3.16, even who don't know what John 3.16 is. But it ends with John 3.16 and 17. To be sure, we don't want to leave out 17. We're going to end with verse 17. So we're reading this story, and as we read through it and as we stop with verses 16 and 17, keep that in mind as to the context that leads up to that statement of Jesus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. So let's go back to John chapter 3, verse 1. We'll get to that one momentarily. 
Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with that person. Jesus answered him, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, You must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And that ends the reading from John chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. I read today from the New Revised Standard Version, updated edition, the one I've been using here lately, and I've come to enjoy it very much. So, let's think about what's going on here and begin to try to understand what Jesus is trying to tell us. When we look at this, we see that Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a leader of the Jews, came to Jesus by night and talked to him. They had this conversation that we read together. Well, a Pharisee, it's interesting that he's identified as a Pharisee because that would kind of place some thoughts in the mind of the reader, in our minds and in the minds of the people in those days. Pharisees were a particular group. They often get a bad rap, and yes, they deserve some of that because they and Jesus had some differences and some um, fussing and fighting, I guess you'd say, amongst themselves, some robust conversations. That was typical in those days between groups of people who had varying views of what it meant to be a follower of God. Well, the Pharisees were a group that was intent on getting God's people to return to covenant faithfulness as they understood it. So they were a serious religious group. They were not anti-God's people. They were indeed trying to get God's people on track and to keep them on track. That being said, they did have some rather uh, disagreements with Jesus, I guess you could say. And Nicodemus is not only described as a Pharisee, but a leader of the Jews. So he had some kind of influence in those days. That was enough to catch 
the writer's attention. He did call Jesus rabbi, which was very interesting because that's a an, an appropriate title for someone who teaches about the law, and, and it would have kind of identified Jesus in the same sort of category as he would have been because he was someone who tried to teach people how to remain faithful or how to become faithful to the law. And he recognizes Jesus as a teacher, and he recognizes that Jesus is a teacher that has come from God, and he recognizes that because he has seen some of the signs that Jesus has done. So he comes respectfully. Now, people have made much about him coming at night. I don't know how much to make of that. Some people say he came at night because he didn't want to be seen by other people, so he didn't want people to know he was coming to talk to Jesus. Well, I don't know about that, maybe. Some people have said that he came at night, and John's gospel telling that he came at night is simply one of the ways John contrasts darkness and light. That here's somebody who came to Jesus under cover of darkness, and Jesus himself being the light of the world, then shined the light of his teaching on Nicodemus. So, yeah, okay. But I don't think that's necessarily at the heart of what's going on. A lot of times there's a lot of meaning that's not necessarily central to the passage, but it's interesting and worth our thinking about. But it's also very important to notice that, that while Nicodemus honors Jesus with what he says, Jesus immediately sets the conversation in a different direction. Did you pick that up when we were reading that? So Jesus immediately when he responds to Nicodemus, says, No one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Now, if you are an astute thinker, and if you're thinking out loud, when I read that, you may have said, Now, wait a minute, I thought the Bible said, Without being born again. Ding, 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 you win. Yes, a lot of times our English translation, translations do say, Born again. This one says, Born from above. And you might say, what's going on here? Well, some of the language can be translated, born again, but it's also, and there are some other connections in the way these words are used that make us convinced that what Jesus was saying here is you needed to be born from above. And in a sense, that really communicates to us better than the idea of being born again. It's not meant, I don't say that to diminish the concept of being born again. I say that because sometimes these terms get a little stuck in our understanding and, and we don't quite know what to make of them and, and re-examining them and thinking about them from a biblical perspective helps us. And here it's one of those, one of those times that when we begin to think about this as being born from above, that's different because that means God does something in our lives. And there's a parallel, I guess you could say, to the story of Jesus' baptism, when the Spirit comes down from above into Jesus. And so when Jesus says we need to be born from above, maybe we could say that that parallels that a little bit. There's nothing in this story that specifically connects the baptism to this idea, but the concept of being born from above certainly does. So Nicodemus, rabbi, not coming to, or calls Jesus rabbi, he's not coming to be argumentative, it doesn't seem. In fact, he's mentioned two other times in John's gospel. 
He uh, defends Jesus at one point, and then later he provides spices for Jesus' burial. A lot of spices. 75 pounds worth of burial spices. That's a lot of spices. That's enough, they tell us, that's enough burial spice to bury a king. Aha, that makes some interesting connections, doesn't it? Well, perhaps that means that at that point, when Jesus had died, he recognized Jesus as king. We don't know that for sure, but it certainly shows that he had great wealth and appreciation for Jesus. So that kind of places Nicodemus in our understanding. He was, he was uh, quite an interesting guy, and, and coming to Jesus like this gives us a lot of insight. So Jesus says to him, you must be born from above. Nicodemus is confused by that, obviously, because he's, what's going on? How can I be born again? How can anyone be born again? We're grown. Can it really happen a second time? And, and Jesus really reiterates what he said. I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said you must be born from above. So a lot of times we make connections there with the, with the reality that, yes, we're human and, yes, we're reborn from above or uh, born again, people say. I'm not against either phrase of that. I like, right here as we talk today, I like this born from above idea because I think it just opens up our understanding better. And too many people kind of get a brain cramp when they think about the idea of born again because they don't really know what to make of that. We're going to flesh that out a little bit. Let's just see where we go. Let's, let's, uh, let's plunge in from a different direction. So clearly, clearly, Jesus is giving an imperative. You must be born again. He doesn't equivocate. He's straight up with that. He says that to Nicodemus. And really, we understand that from the story of the Bible. He says that to all of us. He, he was very straightforward. He said, um, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. That's, that's pretty straight, don't you think? Uh, we might say it differently. We might say, listen, folks, you're not going to heaven unless you're born from above. That's the way we think about that. He referred to it as seeing the kingdom of God. It's pretty much the same idea. I think you agree with that. So Jesus gives us an imperative that you must be born from above. Without it, you're out. You're not in. So, what does he mean, born from above? Well, clearly he means something that anyone can understand. He's not being difficult here. Now, I know the conversation with Nicodemus gets a little, um, little odd, weird, kind of, because they talk about water and spirit and wind and all that kind of stuff, and, and maybe we'll circle back to that. But that's really not at the heart of what we need to understand from this. We need to understand that Jesus says, you must be born from above. It's not negotiable. It's not changeable. It just is the way it is. You must be born from above. So if you've been thinking there's another way that you're going to enter into the kingdom of God, take a look again. This is what Jesus said here, straight up. So, it would help for us to understand. And, and one of the first things I already mentioned is that if it's imperative for all people, it has to be something that people can understand. 
and it has to be something that people can access. It has to be something that people can experience. In other words, being born from above has to be available to you, to me, to everyone. It's not just for certain elite people like Nicodemus. He was one of the elites of his day. It's for everyone. If Jesus says it's an imperative, and if he says that no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above, he must mean you got to be born from above. Okay, so having said that, then we have to say, okay, what does he mean, and, and how do we get there? Okay, fair enough question. Now, before we get into that answer, you have heard probably many ministers, many preachers, you may have heard me say it, that when God gives us something he expects us to do, if he wants us to do something purposeful for him, or if God wants us to stop doing something, because sometimes that's what we need to do, we need to stop doing, whichever it is, God always gives us what we need so that we can either do the thing or stop doing the thing. I've said that more than once. I keep saying that. I'm not entirely sure people believe me, but I am convinced it's biblical without a doubt. And so we have to say, okay, if Jesus here has given us this imperative, then what makes it understandable and available and accessible to everyone? Well, let's think about that in terms of John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world. Okay, so Jesus says straight up again, God loved the world. And that means all of his creation, all people. How did God love the world? Okay, that's a fair question. See, when we look at these things, we need to ask questions and, and answer them from what the Bible says. So, for God so loved the world, how did he love the world? Did he have warm, fuzzy feelings about the world? Did he sing nice songs about the world? Did he gather the angels around in heaven and they held hands and sang, Kumbaya, what a wonderful world it'll be? Uh, no, not so much. For God so loved the world, and then he tells us how he loved the world. This is very important for us to understand, because we are so, in our, in our culture today, we are so confused about love. So confused. We think it's all tied up into warm, fuzzy, emotional feelings. But here God says, Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. So the love that God had for the world is demonstrated by love in action is God giving his only Son. So that means God loved the world enough to give Jesus to the world. Oh, okay. So, so what does God mean by love? Well, a guy named Scott McKnight, I think I've referred to this before, talks about God, God's love as the Bible defines it, and that's the way we need to understand love when we see it in the Bible, as God being for us, being with us, all the way to salvation all the way till the day of the Lord when we gather in the new Jerusalem. So God was for us enough. He wanted to help us enough that he sent his son. He was for us, so he sent his son. His son lived with us and experienced life as we have experienced it fully, completely. He knows what it's like to be human. 
When you think I'm only human, Jesus knows exactly what that is because he experienced it. So God sent his son to the world because he's for the world. He wants to help the world. And he sent his son to be with the world all the way to salvation. So God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. So, God is for us. That's why he sent his son, because he wants good things for us, especially salvation. He came to be with us in the person of Jesus. And, of course, we touched on it earlier in the person of the Holy Spirit coming to be with us, same as the Holy Spirit was with Jesus. So, God is showing his love for us by sending his son, because he's on our side. He was rooting for us, and he came to be with us. So we couldn't say God doesn't understand, but we know fully that God understands and he's going to do everything he can to stay with us all the way to full completion of his plan and promise and purpose for us all the way to the day of the Lord when we gather with him in the holy city, the new Jerusalem. So all the way unto, for, with, and unto, is the way Scott McKnight puts it. So how did God love the world? He loved the world by being for the world, with the world, and continuing that for and with all the way to eternal life. Because it says, whoever believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. So we'll live forever with him. We will not die. Now it says, whoever believes in him. Now this is where people get hung up. Lots of people believe that there is a God. I hope you're one of them. But that's not what we're talking about here. Lots of people believe God tells them the truth. Well, I hope you're one of them and that you believe what the Bible says. But again, that's not what we're talking about here. We generally translate, in our English translations, the Greek word that is used here as believe. But it has a richer, deeper, more specific meaning that will help us. I like the word allegiance to substitute for that. I learned that from another guy. It wasn't original with me. He's been writing about these things, and I I think it's so helpful. Because lots of people believe, and they think, well, so what's believing? Well, believing, as we usually think of it, is just believing something's true. And, and understanding that, yeah, Jesus exists, God exists. That's not what's, talk, what's talked about here. In other words, everyone who gives allegiance to Jesus may not perish, but may have eternal life. See, that's where people get hung up on this whole idea of born again or born from above. God didn't say this for nothing. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who gives allegiance to Jesus may not perish, but have eternal life. So if Jesus becomes the one to whom you are loyal, the one to whom you give all of your life and all of your energy and all of your affection and all of your everything, what's what's the great commandment say? Love God with all you've got and your neighbor as yourself. If your allegiance is to Jesus such that he becomes the guiding force of your life so that when he says go, you go. When he says 
come back, you come back. When he says do this, you do it. When he says don't do this, you don't do it. That's loyalty to Jesus. That's Jesus coming first. I often like to think of it this way. There will become occasions, maybe yet today, for any one of us where our allegiance to Jesus is tested. And we will have to make a decision as to who comes first. Does Jesus come first or does this other person or activity or television program come first? Where is our loyalty? To whom are we most responsive? And that's the idea behind this word believe here. The idea that we pledge our allegiance. We give our loyalty to Jesus, not to some other group. Dare I say, not to our church. I don't think there's a conflict when the church is focused on Jesus, but Jesus still comes first, not to our, here's where the great American problem these days, not to our family. Our family does not come first. Jesus comes first. Not to our work, not to anything. Jesus comes first. And that's what it means when Jesus says you must be born from above. You must pledge your allegiance, receive the Spirit of the living God to come alive in you so that you now are born from above with full allegiance to Jesus, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. That's what matters. That's what makes the difference. And one of the reasons people struggle with this idea of being born again is they don't want to have allegiance to Jesus. They want to have allegiance to themselves or something else. Well, you get the idea. I'm Pastor Rick, and we're going to take a little break here, but we're going to come back and finish up talking about Nicodemus. And then there's some more things I want you to know about our church is doing. Don't go away. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Have you had COVID-19 recently or have suffered a vaccine injury syndrome? You know, all of these conditions are metabolic, catabolic strains on the body. The body has increased needs for essential micronutrients and minerals. And the GI tract may not be functioning completely normally in terms of absorption. The solution, Healthy Cell. Healthy Cell has an entire product line using MicroJo technologies. So these are in liquid gel packs that you simply uh, rip open and a quick squirt and you've got everything you need in terms of nutrients. The product lines are the Immune Super Boost, the uh, Focus in Memory, and my favorite, the REM Sleep Supplement for an ideal night's sleep. Try them out. Go to HealthyCell.com and enter in out loud for a discount on your first purchase. Oh, or go on our platform, America Out Loud Talk Radio, and click on the banner bar, Healthy Cell, to get your discount on your first boxes of uh, Healthy Cell products. So let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. These days, every time you turn on the news, it seems like there's a new threat to your health. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Advanced nutrition company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, 
elderberry, and echinacea. These physician-formulated gels come in a small gel pack. Tear off the top and shoot it down, or mix it in water. Boost your immunity. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. We are fighting the ultimate fight between good and evil. AmericaOutloud.com replaces groupthink with innovative think. Well, it was Walt Whitman, the poet, who said, keep your face always toward the sunshine and shadows will fall behind you. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all. Welcome back. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and we're here together thinking out loud again about important things from the Bible. And we're going to try to take another look at some of the things from this story of Jesus and Nicodemus and their conversation. And when we ended a moment ago, I was helping us understand this whole idea of what it means to be born from above and that we need to give allegiance, loyalty. Jesus comes first. All of those things are descriptive of what it means to be born from above. And Jesus calls us to that, and he did the work to make that possible. That's the point of the cross. So when we talked about this being an imperative, it's an imperative that Jesus himself makes possible because he did the work to forgive sins and then make it possible for us to be loyal to him and to have our lives changed. And then the passage ends with verse 17. And this is another thing that people get awfully confused, and we need to make sure we're not confused about that. But let me read verse 17 so we can think about that. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So it's very clear in verse 17 that when Jesus says, you have to be allegiant to me, He means, you have to be allegiant to me. When he says very clearly in there that we need to be born from above, he means born from above. When he says very clearly in there that he came to save the world, indeed in verse 17, you got that, didn't you? God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So this imperative of salvation, of being born from above, is possible through Jesus. So when we talked earlier that this imperative, being born again, is is not negotiable and not something we explain away. It's something that God, when he says, I want you to do this, he makes it possible for us to do it. And I think that's very good news, don't you? I think it's very, very good news. And we should celebrate that because just like I've said, when God calls us to do something or says to us we need to stop doing something, he makes it possible for us to do what he asks. He doesn't ask us to do something we can't do. I've often said that God gives us a spiritual gift. This is a related concept. He gives all of us who are his followers a spiritual gift or two or three. Usually it's a mix. 
as we understand it best. And that's our mission. And when God gives you a spiritual gift, maybe it's a gift of hospitality or helps or evangelism, we're not all the same. But when God gives us a gift, that's a gift for us to do something for him. And the gift is the call to ministry. So when I think about being a pastor and the gifts God has given me to be a pastor teacher, that's a gift of ministry. And so I guess I could ask you in a little bit related context, uh, what's your gift of ministry? Because everybody has one that's a follower of Jesus. And it really is a gift. I consider it a gift. I don't consider it a burden. I don't consider it a, oh, dear, oh, me, oh, my. I don't consider that I'm going to take my time or anything like that. I consider it a gift from God. He lets me do this. He not only lets me do it, he wants me to do this. I mean, oddly enough, I think he smiles when I do this. And uh, that's really foreign for some people because, did you notice what it said here in verse 17? God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world. There are a lot of people, probably more than I even imagine. A lot of people. Maybe you're one of them. If you are, this next is for you. There are a lot of people that think God is mad at them. Or if they don't think God is mad at them, because we talked about the love of God already, and maybe you agree with that. Even so, some of those people, they think that God is just looking down from heaven, leaning out over the balcony of heaven, watching and saying, okay, I wonder if I'm going to be able to find something they messed up today. As though he's eager to find fault with people. And this story of Nicodemus, and particularly these last two verses, John 3, 16 and 17, are crystal clear that God is not looking at all for a reason to condemn you. He is looking, desperately looking, to save you, to deliver you from evil. Imagine that. God wants to deliver you from evil. That's good news, don't you think? I think we should celebrate that. And so when he says he wants us to be born from above, he's looking for a way to help us understand and embrace loyalty to him so that he can make our lives new and we can be his faithful people. I don't see anywhere in this story that says you have to have a certain particular experience whether you have to have a certain particular emotion, whether you have to be in a certain place or do a certain thing, it says you need to declare your loyalty to Jesus and live that out. That's not so complicated. Well, <laughs> except that it is because we usually want to do what we want to do, not what Jesus wants us to do. But that's the imperative of you must be born from above. And I encourage you to embrace that. And you may not understand it fully until you've lived it a while. But we believe Jesus tells us the truth. And it is the way to live. And I invite you to pledge your allegiance to him. To give him your loyalty 100%. That's what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus. I believe from understanding what's going on here a little bit. That that was the problem Nicodemus had. He couldn't imagine that he needed something different, like loyalty to Jesus. He had no conception 
of that. He was, you might say, stuck a bit with his ideas of what it means to be faithful to the covenant. And Jesus was desperately trying to help him understand that what he was seeing before him standing there in the dark with his very eyes was the living fulfillment of the covenant. And he needed to take that step in Jesus' direction. Maybe you do too. Go ahead. Take the step. Might feel like a leap, but it's a soft landing no matter what. Well, we may get back to John chapter 3 a little bit, but I also want to tell you something that we've been doing at our church. We Actually, we've finished it up. We've been doing it for a lot more weeks than I expected. I mean, it went on a lot longer, and I wasn't particularly sorry. I was just surprised. I didn't think it would be, go on that long. But some time ago, I heard a guy talking on a podcast that I sometimes listen to about the hymns that he had chosen the, that he thought every Christian should know. And so he told about them, listed them, and described them, not as his favorite hymns, I don't know what his favorite hymns were, but he chose hymns that he believed every Christian should know. I thought it was an interesting list. Probably everybody who would make such a list would make a different list. There might be some overlap. That, that didn't concern me. That isn't what, I, what got my attention. What got my attention was, what would happen if our church would get our heads together and come up with a list, and I started out saying 10, uh, if we'd come up with the 10 hymns that every Christian should know. Now, I was very careful, and I was very impressed. Recently, someone reminded me of, of that we didn't choose our favorite hymns. I was very careful at the beginning to say, I'm not wanting you to tell us your favorite hymns. I want you to think about it carefully. What are the hymns that you think every Christian should know? Now, I didn't do that because I'm against the more modern songs that we sing. We use those. I'm not against them at all. The music is always changing. It changed when I was in high school. And with the introduce, introduction of the Jesus movement, what's well portrayed in the movie you may have seen recently, the Jesus Revolution. If you haven't seen that movie, go see it. But there was a certain musical style that kind of became... Uh, popular in the church and some things happened and, and I was very grateful. The church I attended at the time was very receptive to that. Uh, when I tell you that it was a Baptist church, some of you might be surprised by that, but I did not hear one, and I don't know, there may have been some, but as a teenager in that era, attending that Baptist church, by the way, in case you wonder which one it was, I'll give them a shout out. It was Third Baptist Church in Owensboro, Kentucky. But they were so gracious to us, and we had quite a large youth choir, and they were so kind to, to cheer us on that I never had a clue if anyone objected to that kind of music being sung in their church or by those teenagers. So I, I, I really have to give them a debt of gratitude. They, they were terrific in that regard. I, I greatly appreciate that. So anyway, I said to our church, I would like to, for us to choose the 10, and I started with 10 because you have to have a number somewhere, hymns that every Christian should know. So I started out by saying, and I just passed out a piece of paper and said, okay, list on this paper the, the 10 hymns you think every Christian should know. And I got a bunch of responses. I mean, some people couldn't contain themselves. They couldn't list just 10. And that was fine. I, I've got some lists. I'll use them. That's great. 
somebody wrote on their on their sheet as one of their choices was uh, all the Christmas carols, and I was impressed by that. I thought, yeah, me too, but uh, we couldn't really uh, didn't really fit the idea. So I thought, well, let's just and so we talked about that a little bit, and I think everybody was okay with it. We're gonna revisit this come next fall and take a look at what are the 10 Christmas carols that every Christian should know. But we continued that process, and so I came up with, you're not going to believe this, but I came up, ended up with a list of 143 hymns that every Christian should know. Well, well, that's a lot of hymns, and that's too many. We couldn't work with that, and I understood that, and you understood that, and all that. So, So I kind of compiled them and came up with the top 25 said, okay, here's the top 25. A lot of good choices on there. A lot of ones that I really liked. And again, it wasn't about my favorites or their favorites. It was about the hymns that every Christian should know. So I picked the 25 that were most frequently mentioned. It kind of broke down that way pretty well. And I passed out another sheet and I said, okay, here are the 25. (laughs) 25. And I told them, this is 25 out of 143. I said, now choose the hymns off of this list that you think are the hymns every Christian should know. Now, I didn't say to everybody, you can only choose so many. I said, the only only restriction I said is if you choose every one of the 25, I'm throwing your ballot away because it won't count for anything. They all laughed and understood that. And people took it seriously. All the way from the beginning, people took it seriously. I I was so impressed by that, so impressed. So people then chose from that 25, And we were finally able to narrow it down to, (laughs) you you might laugh at this, I I just thought this was so, so amazing. I I thought it was great, and I thought, oh boy, what have we gotten ourselves into? But we ended up with 10, but there were five other ones that were so close that I I decided we had to have the top 10 and, and five honorable mentions. So what I thought we'd do from time to time here on the program is we'd talk about those hymns, and that I would use this time to both tell you what our church chose, but also to encourage you to think about that. What are the 10 hymns that you would choose that you think every Christian should know? Now, some of the ones on our list will probably be familiar to you, and you might agree. Some of them you might say, uh, not so much. That's fine. I, I don't think there's a, a singular right and wrong answer on this. Then Not at all. But you might use your imagination, use your judgment, give a little thought to it. What are the ones that you think every Christian should know? And, of course, you better have a reason for why, because that kind of matters, don't you think? Well, the, the uh, number 10 on our list, that's what I want to introduce today. I'm sure almost everybody will know this one. But number 10 on our list was Jesus Loves Me. And you may remember that hymn from Sunday school days. A lot of times people do remember that from Sunday school days because we tend to think of Jesus Loves Me as a Sunday school song. And to be sure, it generally is a song that that our children sing, and we don't necessarily think about it as adults, but most of the participants, participants in our work were adults. We had some kids participate, and I was glad for that. But we came up with number 10, Jesus Loves Me. And the stanzas are quite, quite helpful. No wonder people thought this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, 
but he is strong. And then you know the refrain, yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so. And I think we all like the idea that the Bible tells us so. It says that at the end of the refrain, it says that at the beginning of the first stanza. Second stanza is this, Jesus loves me, he who died, heaven's gates to open wide. He will wash away my sin, let his little children, or let his little child, excuse me, come in. Well, that's kind of what we talked about today from John 3.16, isn't it? Stanza 3. Jesus loves me, loves me still, though I'm very weak and ill. From his shining throne on high comes to watch me where I lie. And stanza 4. Jesus loves me, he will stay close beside me all the way. If I love him when I die, he will take me home on high. So that's the hymn, Jesus Loves Me. I didn't read the refrain every time, but you understand how that fits together. Now, a lot of good words in there, a lot of understandable reasons why people would have chosen that. But I wonder if you have any idea where that hymn comes from, how we got that hymn. Well, the hymn comes from a, you think you'll be surprised with this, from a novel called Say and Seal. Back in 1860, and that's a day or two ago, 1860, Anna Warner and her sister Susan wrote this two-volume novel called Say and Seal. No, I have not read it. I've never seen it. I'm just telling you what I know about this hymn. Well, they wrote it under the pen names of Amy Lothrop and Elizabeth Wetherell. So you won't find it under Anna Warner, but I don't even know if it's out there. It might be. But anyway, they wrote this story. And in the story, in the novel, there's a little boy who's sick. And his Sunday school teacher comes to visit him, and he asks the Sunday school teacher to sing him a song. Well, in the novel, in the story, the teacher agrees to sing the song. And the verses I just read to you are the verses that those ladies wrote in their story as the song that the Sunday school teacher sang to the little boy. Now, generally... In our day, we don't have all four of those stanzas in our hymnals. Now, this hymnal happens to be the 1975 edition of the Baptist hymnal, and it has all four, and that's the ones I read to you, just the way they were first written in that novel way back in 1860, post-Civil War times. Usually, these days, we don't sing the third stanza because it does deal specifically with the context of the story of the little boy who was sick. And that just doesn't seem to fit our usual sense of what we would use in worship. We use the other three usually. And sometimes, and I'm pretty sure you'll notice this if you look around at all, sometimes we even sing stanzas that somebody else has written and they insert them in hymnals. The hymnal that we use in our church currently has such an inserted uh, stanza, has, has two that came to us from the Warner sisters, but it has one that someone else wrote, and it was inserted in the hymnal. I don't know why they did that. The hymn compilers, that's what they did. And that's what happens in in other situations in, in hymns. There's no question about that. It's just, it's just what happens with songs that we sing. So in 1860, they wrote this song, Jesus Loves Me. A man named William Bradbury came along, and he wrote a tune for it in 1861, and then included it in a hymnal that he was putting together. And that's how it got its start 
and from there it's been passed down and passed down and appreciated and appreciated and here we are today. You might be interested to know that generally speaking hymns are consist of the text and the tune. So we, when we talk about a hymn we are talking about a text with a tune generally but we also distinguish between the text and the tune. So the text name would be Jesus Loves Me and the tune might be called by a different name and in this case the tune is named China. Now I don't always know why they choose the tunes they do but in this case we are told historically that the reason that was named China is because missionaries used it in China back in the day and that the children in China particularly liked this hymn. Now, I don't know how they used it whether they used it in English or what whether they liked the the, the tune more and they just adapted words to it. I don't have any idea. But it was used in China and so they named the tune China in honor of those missionaries using that there and appreciating that. And so we, our church, chose as number 10 on our list, and we'll do a little countdown over the next few weeks, number 10 on our list was Jesus Loves Me, This I Know, For the Bible Tells Me So. And I didn't particularly plan it this way. It just kind of worked out. I wish I was smart enough to plan these things more carefully than, than what I really do. That's why I guess I like this idea of thinking out loud. But it really fits with what we've talked about from John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, about how God loved the world. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that's absolutely clear from John chapter 3. And we talked about what that means, that God loves the world. It means that he sent his son. And that's the demonstration of God's love. He was for us so much. He wants for us to have eternal life so much. He wants for us to see, to know, to experience life as he meant it to be so much that he sent his son. He's for us. He's cheering for us. He wants us to follow him. And so because he is so much for us, he set his son to be with us. And that's the story of Jesus. His birth, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension back to heaven, back to being with the Father. He wanted his, his son to be with us and experience life as we experience it. So, so we would know that he understands, and he does. And then... He sent the Holy Spirit, and we'll get to that as the story of Jesus unfolds. He sent the Holy Spirit, and so now he's with us in a whole different way, all the way, all the way until the end of time, till the day of the Lord, sometimes we call it, or sometimes we call it until heaven comes down, or sometimes we call it till we all go to heaven. Sometimes we refer to it as the new Jerusalem, the holy city comes down from heaven and we see it. However you like to think of it, it's a lot of those things and more than we can imagine. But he's with us all the way until we live forever with him. And that's what he was trying to get Nicodemus to understand. That's what Nicodemus was struggling with. He couldn't quite understand what was going on. And so Nicodemus was, was wrestling with some of the things that God was trying to do. Now, now, in the context of the times, he probably should have understood that because he would have understood that, that Gentile converts to Judaism were considered newborn children. That was the way they looked at them when they were, 
when they became Jewish and converted, that's the way they saw them. They understood in the context of their times when, when someone was adopted in the Roman, under the Roman rule, under Roman law, they gave up their status with their former family and they had a whole new status in a new family. And so they would have understood that when someone converts to Judaism, it's like they're a newborn child. And a lot of times, they, they had, in fact, most times, maybe every time, they had ceremonies to mark the conversion that included being immersed in water. In other words, they thought of that as a purity ritual to remove the impurity of, of their being a Gentile. And so they would their idea of being born of water should have had some meaning different to Nicodemus than he seemed to grasp. But probably his problem was he couldn't imagine the, the, the importance or the necessity of a conversion. Well, some people today still worry about that too. But clearly, when Jesus was talking about this idea of water and spirit, he was using symbols that were part of their context, part of their religious practice, where water served as cleansing and spirit would have been understood because they had a concept of the wind blowing as spirit. And Jesus calls us to be converted, to change. And the conversion he calls for us is to believe and to make him first, pledge our loyalty 100% to Jesus, and to be born from above. It's not really complicated to understand. It's not really complicated to do. The battle becomes, do I want Jesus more than I want what I want? I'm convinced that that is probably the biggest hiccup today. And I challenge and call you to consider giving your loyalty to Jesus, making him first so that every decision is guided by him. Well, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and this has been Faith Is, where we have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. We'll be back next week.